1 Corinthians chapter 4. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, Paul says. Even if you had 10,000 guardians or nannies or tutors or instructors in Christ, even if you had 10,000 of those, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, because I'm your father, I urge you to imitate me. And for this reason, because I want you to imitate me, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, an imitator of Paul. Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. And he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. I've never met a guy who said, I would like to be a bad father. Every single man I've talked to wants to be a good father in his own way, shape, or form. He wants to be a better father than his father maybe was to him, or he had an excellent father, and he wants to live up to that standard. One way or the other, Paul gives us a really clear description here, dads, I'm talking to you now, of what it means to be a good father. And a good father is one that does more than just impart knowledge and like a teacher instructs your children with that knowledge, which is good, but knowledge only just puffs up. He's actually imparting to them a life. A father's imparting the life of Christ into his sons. So as the father imitates Christ Jesus, the sons imitate their father. And so he teaches them as he goes along and he begins to nurture them in the faith and they begin to draw off of that life and they learn from how he interacts with the father and then they become fathers themselves. The best way to be a father is to let Christ be seen through you. And there's no time like the present to start. There's no time like the present to, to drop the, uh, the religiosity and to drop the, the these and thous and, and to begin to dress down your relationship with the Lord into a very real, very transparent, very organic thing. Where we say, this is my real relationship with God today. This is my struggle with the Lord today. This is my fear today. This is my confession today. And let the kids see you because more is caught than taught. So we want to, as fathers, we want to be imitators of Christ Jesus. How do we do that? What did the disciples who are being fathered by Jesus, the 12 boys, say to him at the end? Jesus, would you teach us not to preach, not to do miracles, signs and wonders, but would you teach us to pray? That's what we want to learn from you because what we've taken from these three and a half years of ministry is that your power comes from your place of prayer. The anointing that you have comes from you often withdrawing to the secret place even before the sun comes up. We know that the power you operate in is not your own. It's actually, you're endued from power from on high. The Holy Spirit in him was releasing power, but he went and nurtured that in the quiet place. Teach us to pray, they said. We want to know how to do it because they know everything else flowed from that place. All the great teaching and preaching, the signs and wonders and miracles came from him staying in step with the Spirit. How do I teach my sons? 
How do I show them what Jesus is like? I pray. They see me praying like Jesus and they adopt that lifestyle. The question is, in the last two weeks, how many minutes or how many hours of intercessory prayer in 14 days have I spent with the Lord? That's a good question. Examine yourselves. Fathers, what percentage of time does prayer play in your day-to-day schedule? In a 24-hour day, in the 16-awake-hour day, what percentage of time does prayer play? I'm here to make a confession this morning as your pastor, and I'm here to make a plea this morning as your pastor. I got a convicting word. I think I was talking to to Lucas Beal, maybe, here this last week. We were just kind of talking offhandedly about how corporate prayer and prayer meetings and even a meeting like this can sometimes come in and take the place, a substitute for going into our prayer closet, closing the door, and having time alone in intercession with the Father. Bible reading, yes, it's great. Love my Bible. Pour into it every day. But how much time just sitting there, my heart open before the Lord and just interceding, just listening to his voice. And I tell you, these past two weeks, it was such a convicting word because these past two weeks, it's not been much. I felt a little beat up, a little bit moved by circumstances and the ways of the world coming in my heart and some dullness, you know what I'm talking about? Like the edge was gone a little bit and just kind of feeling a little lackadaisical in my spirit man. And so I'm fighting these battles. I'm like, Lord, why? And I I got this attack over here. I got this enemy thing. I got my mind being distracted. Why, why, why? And all of a sudden I wake up. Oh, I've been prayerless. The last couple of weeks, I really haven't devoted much time in the secret place. I've done a lot of activities. I've actually led some prayer meetings in the last two weeks. I've done a lot of that corporately, which is all super good. But as Luke said at the end of our meeting, those corporate prayer meetings are fire. They're, the coal gets put on those corporate prayer meetings because of what happens in the individual closet time. The knee work of believers, what happens on our knees actually fuels times like this and it fuels corporate prayer times. So last week, I made mention of the firepower that we have access to. I talked about how the enemy and the world and the world system is coming at us with like knives and pitchforks. And here we are as the church trembling in fear because of the power of the darkness coming against us. And behind us is the hangar full of F-16s and A-10 Warthogs and all of the bazookas and the nuclear codes. And we're saying, what are we going to do? And the Lord says, you've got everything at your disposal. You have complete power in prayer. You have complete access to route the enemy in prayer. Why? Because we have access to God Almighty. When we touch God, we touch the hand that turns the wheel of the universe. We do not have power in and of ourselves, amen? But we have the powerful one in and of ourselves. Inside of us, God is powerful. And how we interact with him is in this place of prayer. How do we learn to go get the weapons off the shelves, turn them towards the enemy, and fire? That's prayer. So if there's that much power in the place of prayer, how much distraction must there be to keep us from the place of prayer? 
How much distraction even to get us into the flesh where we do noble things that look like religious prayer but really aren't touching the heart of God. Meaning like we pray like that Pharisee that says, I thank you God that I'm not like so and so. He was praying and his prayer was not heard. How much prayer in the flesh are we offering to God? Saying the same things every time, showing up to the same meeting every time and just throwing it against the wall and hoping it sticks. Powerless praying. So I'm convicted about that. So I talked last week about how a unified church is powerful and it shakes the gates of hell. And unity, we're on that word for three weeks here. And the Lord is doing more of that. But I'm telling you how, and Carl said it earlier, how we operate, how we exercise the keys of the kingdom is in prayer. So if you remember uh, a few months ago in February, I talked about a revelation I was getting about anxiety and worry being a sin. And now I've always just kind of coddled that as something that's normative in the Christian life. And how anxiety and worry is just something we do and we try not to do as much of. But really, I got the revelation that thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery is said because all sin leads to death. And if I murder, if I commit adultery, there are natural consequences. Well, in a lesser way, but in a very real way, Jesus says, do not worry about two things, about your life and do not worry about tomorrow. Therefore, if it says that in Matthew 6, and I transgress that command, and I worry, and I'm anxious, then I'm going to have real-world consequences. Because, as I said in February, worry is a sin. It starts in the heart, I said. We're dragged away from contentment and childlike trust, and we're dragged to greed and the fear of future circumstances and suffering. And what was the solution that I said? Well, the solution was found in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, remember, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will stand guard. And I said that that word in the Greek is frueo. And that word has two meanings. The, the peace of God guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And frueo means that there's a military guard that's standing at the gates of the city, preventing an invading army from coming into the city. And so I said that the peace of God is like a military guard. It's not some peace-filled, like oily, ooey-gooey thing. It's a military word. The peace of God stands guard to our heart to protect us from hostile invasion. That's a protection. Secondary meaning, it protects our mind. The peace of God stands guard for the besieged inhabitants of that city so that they don't flee, so that they don't run away. And we talked about how our mind, it stands guard over our mind because my mind is always wanting to run away. I'm always wanting to get into tomorrow or I'm wanting to get out of reality and to numb the effects of reality with entertainment or substance or something else. I want to get out of dodge in my mind and the peace of God, when I lay down my anxiety and commit my request to him, it guards my heart from hostile invasion and it guards my mind from fleeing a besieged city. That's the solution. But we must pray. So today, I want to tell you that just like murder is a sin, and anxiety is a sin, and adultery is a sin, so is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness, and what I confessed to you earlier, and I confessed to my wife last night, is that we're called to pray. 
over and over and over again in the scriptures. You remember in Old Testament scripture when the people call on Samuel. He's the priest of God for the people of Israel. And he says in 1 Samuel chapter 12, pray, I will not cease to pray for you and sin against God. I will not commit the sin of prayerlessness is what he says. And so in the New Testament, we have commands like pray without ceasing. Pray in the spirit at all times. Pray for us, Paul says. Pray, pray, pray over and over and over again. So when we don't pray, we commit this sin of prayerlessness. And it is real. And we're all guilty of it at some measure. And I'm telling you that it has real world consequences. And so prayerlessness makes us weak. It makes us easily moved by bad news. We get shifted when we get that bad news. It makes us feel overwhelmed. It makes us feel discouraged and most of all, powerless. We're not strengthened in our inner man. But listen to what Hebrews 11 says about praying people. Their weakness is turned into strength. They become powerful in battle and they rout foreign armies. Women, praying women, received back their dead, raised to life again. When we pray, we're actually tapping into the source of all power, which is God himself. When we're prayerless, we're tapping into the source of our power, which is extremely weak and frail. And we feel like we're accomplishing very little in the spirit because we are. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works, as the saying goes. And so prayer unlocks things in the kingdom. So I want to give just a couple examples of this. I want to talk about some reasons for prayerlessness and what the solution is. We talked about the solution for anxiety. I want to finish with the solution for prayerlessness. Go with me, if you would, to James chapter 5, common passage here for us. Seven times. This word prayer is lifted out. In all things, prayer covers a life. Is anyone among you, in verse 13, James chapter 5, is anyone among you in trouble or suffering? Then let them pray. Number one. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. And if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then we get three sentences here that's been messing with my mind this last week. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being or he was of like feeling, or he was a man of similar passions, even as we are. And he prayed earnestly, or the literal is he prayed in prayer. He prayed the prayer that God put in him to pray. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for 42 months, three and a half years. And again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. 
And for some reason, when I was reading that, I've read this a thousand times, and I just saw it from like the satellite perspective. And I saw that region over the Middle East. I saw Israel, and I saw it cloudless. And I saw it cloudless for month after month after month for 42 months. And I got the picture of entire weather patterns over that side of the globe being diverted because of one short little man and his prayers, his powerful prayers, just like us. And then I got to thinking about what happened when Elijah prayed. Think with me for a moment, because I think when we think we pray, it's all like unicorns and rainbows, maybe, and like the candy falls from heaven. But when Elijah prayed, there was drought. There was not rain or dew for 42 months. That would be like not a drop of rain since January of 2020, and we're almost halfway there right now. We're not quite halfway there for 42 months here in Eldorado, Kansas. Can you imagine? But back then, they were moved by the rain. They were affected by the rain. They weren't growing or selling any crops. Their animals died with no rain. It'd be a huge deal now, but cataclysmic back then. 42 months with not a drop of rain because one man prayed God's prayer. Can you imagine the death that happened? The, the people who died of thirst, the animals who died, the family farms who were ruined, yet the entire country that was ransacked because of one man's prayer. And what did he do, that one man? He prayed in prayer. He prayed more than just a religious thing. He got a download from God and he uttered that prayer. Look with me for one minute. What happened here? Take a left, if you would, all the way back to 1 Kings. All the way back to 1 Kings 17. So I think this is worth lifting out here. Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, literally drops out of heaven, it looks like, onto the scene. He came from nowhere and he just shows up. King Ahab is a horrible king, Jezebel's husband. And it says in chapter 16 that Ahab, in verse 30, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him in Israel. Not only he considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and worship him. Now, why is that important? Baal was the sky god, lower G lowercase g. Baal was in charge of the weather. Now, what did God tell Israel was going to happen if they got in the land and they served other gods? You don't have to turn there with me right now, but this is exactly what he says. Be careful, this is Deuteronomy 11, be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them, Moses said. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens, so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Deuteronomy 11, God laid it out. This is what's going to happen. So we have 1 Kings 16. This is what Ahab did. He was worshiping Baal. And so, bam, on the scene shows up Elijah, God's prophet. And he says, chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Why? Because Baal was the sky god. 
And the Lord says, no, he is not. I am the sky God. I am the earth God. I'm the universe God. I will show myself powerful here. So Elijah got a download from heaven and he says it in prayer to King Ahab. And then he has to run and hide. Now, before he says this, we don't know what happens to him, but after this, we know he has to go to the river Cherith. He's got to go stay by the ravine and be fed by birds, and then the river dries up because of the drought, and then he's got to go to the widow of Sidon, and he's got to live there, and she has to feed him miraculously. He raises her boy from the dead, and he bakes, and he bakes, and he bakes because of the very thing he said is bringing destruction on the land. It's a powerful thing when we pray, and it actually does some damage But then, after that baking time of three and a half years, and after that country that had the flu got all of the junk and the sickness out of their stomach, then it was time to put it to an end. And Elijah comes to Ahab and he says, why don't you gather all your prophets? 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. Let's go to the top of Mount Carmel and let's have a showdown. And we all remember what happened. They cried out to their God, send the rain, move Baal. And Elijah mocks them and says, maybe he's going to the bathroom or maybe he's on vacation or something like that. Powerful story. Elijah, just like you and me, had shut up the heavens. And then look what he says in chapter 18. Look at verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. This is what he said. Look how specific it is. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Again, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, not Baal, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Oh, for that prayer today. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. But no rain yet. And then you remember, Elisha, just like in James 5, we have seven times of prayer, Elijah puts his head between his knees in the birthing position and he prays seven times for rain. And then his servant finally says, a cloud like a man's hand is coming up from the sea and it drenches the entire place. Such a cool story. We're always trying to gather a bunch of people together thinking that numbers will do it and God's trying to get a man or he's trying to get a woman Because his purposes are way bigger than our purposes. Elijah wanted the king to repent of his wickedness. And he inflicted a drought on the country to get the flu out. God had bigger plans because you find out one chapter later, what happens is the king of Samaria, after all the prophets of Baal are killed, he gathers 32 kings together and he says, let's go wipe out Israel. And because the prophets of Baal had been uprooted and removed from Israel, then God said, I'm going to rescue you from the king of Samaria and those 32 kings. There was a massive victory, massive victory right after this. But the enemy's plan was to wipe out Israel and he just needed apostasy a little longer. But God's man showed up and shifted the course of human history. 
God was looking for a man in Samuel. He was looking for a prophet who would raise up a king like David, remember? But before he could get Samuel, who did he have to get? A woman named Hannah. And Hannah had to travail and travail and travail because she could not have children. And she cried out to the Lord, I want children or I die. And finally there in the temple, Eli thought she was drunk and she got what she was requesting from the Lord. Eli said, go home. And her face changed. And she consecrated this boy, Samuel, to the temple. Before God could get his man, he had to get his woman. Before God could get the country saved, he had to have a man named Elijah step up into the gap. And God's looking for one, just one. And so we, each of us have the ability, James 5 says, to be just like Elijah, to do great things. He was a man of like passions, but we have an advantage. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm sealed. He's living in me. Elijah was in the old covenant. But we have power in this place of prayer. Ian Bounds says that prayer is a tremendous force on the earth. I'm going to read you a quote out of this here. Prayer is a tremendous force in the world. Consider this picture. Think with me for just a moment, he says, of prayer and its wonderful possibilities. God's cause is quiet and motionless on the earth. But then an angel, strong and impatient to be of service to God. This angel waits around the throne of God in heaven. You got the picture with me? In order to move things on earth and give impetus to the movements of God's cause in the world, this angel gathers all the prayers of God's saints in all the ages and he puts them before God just as Aaron used to perfume himself with the delicious incense when he entered the holy sanctuary made awesome by the immediate presence of God. Then the angel impregnates all the air with that holy offerings of prayer. And then he takes its fiery body and he casts it to the earth. And note this remarkable result in Revelation 8. There were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. What tremendous force is this that has thus convulsed the earth? The angel around the throne who has charge of those prayers, this mighty force is prayer, like the power of the earth's mightiest dynamite. He says later that prayer is simply asking God to do for us what he has promised us he will do if we ask him. We're simple-minded creatures, we're sheep, and so he gives us an acronym, A-S-K, ask, seek, Knock, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and, the door will, uh, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. A-S-K, he says, God wants to give it to us anyway. All we must do is ask. And then he says this, prayer is this. Prayer is using the divinely appointed means for doing what we need, for getting what we need, and for accomplishing God's purposes on the earth. This is God's method. This is how we get the bazooka out of the gun rack and aim it at the enemy is prayer. This is God's divinely appointed means. Luther says that the Christian's trade is praying. 
Oswald Chambers told me this morning, as a saved soul, the real business of your life is intercessory prayer. God has committed himself to prayer. If we fulfill the conditions, he will fulfill the answer. His job is to give the answer. Our job is to ask. But he's looking for earnest prayers, simple, artless, direct, specific prayers. Specific prayers get specific answers. High-minded, high-vocabulary prayers don't move God's heart. Simple prayers. Prayer aims at an answer. And so he talks about what the church needs, and I'll finish with his quotes here. The church more than ever needs profound convictions of the vast importance of prayer in prosecuting the work committed to it. I'll say it again. The church more than ever needs a profound conviction, meaning you need to hear what I'm saying as not me saying it, but the Lord saying, this is the most important thing you can give yourself to. A profound conviction of the vast importance of prayer. Everything on the earth is moved by prayer or not moved. Men and women are moved or not moved because of prayer. The vast importance of prosecuting the work committed to the church. More praying and better praying must be done if the church is to be able to perform the difficult, delicate, responsible task given to her by the Lord and Master. Defeat awaits a non-praying church, but success is sure to follow a church given to much prayer. God is looking for men and women who aren't necessarily educated, who aren't necessarily eloquent, but their hearts are burning like Hannah's heart was burning with prayer. Elijah says, hear me, God, that the people would know that you are God. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, that they would know that you are God. What cures all of our anxieties, our discouragement, any depression, any worry? Specific prayer. I call it making my laundry list to God. I've said this before. You wake up on Monday afternoon after you've spent the morning at work and you say, I'm worried. I'm anxious about this, this, and this. And you go to God with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you hear me. And you give him your top five. I'm worried about this relationship. I'm worried about this financial struggle. I'm worried about this sickness. And you lay the specifics out and you give it to him and the peace of God comes and guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But you must make your request known. So I finish with this. Why all the prayerlessness? Why prayerlessness? If it's so powerful, if, if we have everything that we need for life and godliness, if we have everything that we need, it's not very smart not to pray, Right? Like, like, we bind and we loose. And so just logically, it's, it's not very intelligent not to pray, but we don't do it. And this is why I think I don't do it. And this is my confession. I am afraid that if I commit myself to prayer, that I'm just not going to be disciplined enough to walk it out. Because I know myself. I know what I can start and do for a little while, and then I stop. And that's because I hear this call, and maybe you're hearing me say this call this morning, to pray, and you're hearing it like Moses on the mountain with the Ten Commandments saying, do this law, and you feel powerless when you hear that, because you know yourself. And the reason you feel powerless and I feel powerless is because the law never 
did and never will help us to accomplish anything. We get no empowerment to pray by knowing that we should pray. Amen? Zero empowerment. All the law does is show us how weak and pitiful we are. And so we can kind of relegate ourselves to praying in the flesh and being carnally minded, where it's powerless and religious, like I said earlier, and we pay lip service to it, but we don't really fully believe that it's maybe going to happen. We kind of hope it does, but we don't believe it's going to happen like Elijah did. And that's because we cannot pray in the flesh, even religious good deeds. That's the tree of the knowledge of good first and evil. It all has to go. We have to pray in the spirit. We remember that God says, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. And so praise the Lord, I have Jesus living in me who is perpetually doing what? He's praying. He's making intercession. I have the Holy Spirit in me who is doing what? He's praying. They're both leaning forward into this place of prayer. They're helping me pray in the Spirit. I actually want to pray in the Holy Spirit. But if I walk by the flesh, I gratify the desires of the flesh. But if I walk by the Spirit, I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So it comes back to simply walking in the Holy Spirit. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. In that new creation, Christ in me is praying. The Holy Spirit in me is praying. So what do we do? That's what I did last night. Had a good time with the Lord last night, praying for you all, praying for this morning, repenting of my prayerlessness. Number one, I confessed. Lord, I've been prayerless. It's a sin. You know it already. I have no condemnation about that. I'm your son, but Father, I confess I've been prayerless. And I repent. I change my mind from thinking I've got to carry this load of praying without ceasing on my shoulders. Instead, I just come underneath your yoke that's easy and your burden is light. Lord Jesus, teach me to pray. I just repent. I change my mind. I can't do it on my own. Lord Jesus, pray through me. Holy Spirit, pray through me. Come and do a work in my heart. I've confessed and now I've repented. Now I'm just listening. Now I say, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? And he says, come away with me in the midnight hour. Or come away with me at 6.30 in the morning, tomorrow morning. Or come away with me at your lunch break tomorrow. Take a break from lunch tomorrow. Come away with me. He'll show you. You don't have to make it up. The Lord will show you. And then what do I do? I obey. I show up at 6.30 the next morning. I show up at midnight that night. I show up and skip my meal the next day. I just do what he's saying. And I meet him there and there's a flood of grace. And there's an anointing on that prayer time. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I'm praying with power like 24 hours ago I had not been praying with. Then what do I do if I stumble the next day? Well, you rinse, you wash, and you repeat. You wax on, you wax off. I confess, I've been prayerless. I repent, Lord, I want you to teach me to pray. I listen. Oh, your assignment is what you told me a few days ago. Okay, I'll do that. And then I obey. And I just confess to you guys and I say, pray for me, I've been prayerless. And I keep on fighting the fight of faith until soon and very soon my life becomes prayer. I'm breathing prayer day in and day out. I'm praying without ceasing, but not I, Christ within me. Does this make sense? The Lord's looking for people like this. This is what he wants. We've got a lot of Elijahs sitting in here, capped off. 
maybe thinking that you have to do it in the flesh, you could never be like him. And I tell you, you're a man, you're a woman of like passions. We've got Hannah's in here. The Lord says, I can change a nation with one man. I can change a weather pattern with one man, one woman. Will you be that person the Lord's looking for? The secret of power in our corporate prayer is secret closet prayer. And I wanna invite you guys to search your hearts with me. Confess and ask the Lord, what place of prayer is he calling you to? What's your assignment? I'm gonna read some lyrics that really bless my heart by Jeremy Riddle. It's called Fall Afresh. If you would, just make this your prayer to the Lord this morning. Awake in my soul, come awake to hunger, to seek, to thirst. Awaken, first love, come awake and do as you did at first. Spirit of the living God, come fall afresh on me. Come wake me from my sleep. Blow through the caverns of my soul. Pour in me to overflow, to overflow. Come and fill this place. Let your glory now invade. Spirit, come and fill this place. Let your glory now invade. So Spirit of the living God, come fall afresh on me. Come wake me from my sleep. Blow through the caverns of my soul. Pour in me to overflow. To overflow. So I want to invite you just for a moment here to search your heart, to pray that prayer. To confess any prayerlessness. To repent, to change your mind, just to listen. The Holy Spirit, like Jesus, is saying, come away with me. Jesus told his disciples, come be with me for a moment and rest. Listen. Would you obey today? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. 
So blow a trumpet in Zion and declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people and consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests, you and me, who minister before the Lord, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them weep before they attend to sacrifices. Let them now attend to their hearts. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. For why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And I would say, why should the world say, there's no power in the church? And then after that, the Lord will be jealous for his land. After those prayers, the Lord will respond and take pity on his people. And the Lord replied to them, I am now sending you grain and new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. And never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. So Lord, I pray for weeping. I pray for broken hearts, Lord, for our prayerlessness. I pray for crying out from the gut level of our heart, Lord that we would see you move in our land. And I pray that you would respond, God. I pray that you would pour out the new grain and the wine and the oil, Lord, and you would lift the reproach off the church, God, in Jesus' name. Make us a praying people, God. Spirit of the living God, come fall fresh on us. Fill us freshly with the Holy Spirit, God. I pray that you would make us Elijah's and Hannah's in this room, God. I call them forth in the name of Jesus, Elijah's and Hannah's, Lord. It would seek your face, Lord, and change the trajectory of human history. Pray you would mark them, even in this room this morning, God. Fall afresh, Holy Spirit, and do a work.